0: This is a reading of uh, volume 291 in the Collected Works, although it's not the official Collected Works edition, of uh, a collected set of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled, Color. And this is part one, The Nature of Color, the Basis for a Spiritual Scientific Understanding of Color for Artists. And lecture one was given in Doornock on the 6th of May, 1921, and it was entitled, Color Experience, Image Colors. Colour, which is our subject for the next three days, concerns the physicist, although we shall not discuss this aspect just now. It also concerns or should concern the psychologist, the metaphysician, but it must above all concern the artist, the painter. If we look around at contemporary ideas about colour, however, we find that although the psychologist may have this or that to say about our subjective experience of colour, this contributes little to our understanding of its objective nature, a matter which is left entirely to the physicist. Moreover, there is little inclination to admit that art has anything decisive to say about the nature of color, not at least for an objective understanding of coloration. Nowadays people are very far from grasping the meaning of Goethe's often quoted aphorism, Quote, He to whom nature begins to unveil her open secrets, feels an irresistible longing for her worthiest interpreter, art. A person who, like Goethe, has a living experience of art, has no doubt that what the artist says about color is deeply connected with its real nature. Normally, color is regarded as belonging in the first place to the colored surfaces we perceive, to the impressions we receive from the colors of nature. We can produce a certain range of color with the familiar prismatic experiments, and we can seek insight into the realm of color in many other ways too. But color is still primarily regarded as a subjective impression. You know that physics has long had the habit, we might say bad habit, of maintaining that the colored world we see around us is present only for our senses, and that, if we are to speak objectively, color is no more than certain vibrations of the finest form of matter, known as the ether. Those who think in terms of such definitions and explanations have no idea how their experience of color is actually connected with a vibrating ether. But when people speak of the qualities of color itself, they refer only to the subjective impression. Then they look around for something else that is objective, and in doing so, they wander far away from color. For in conjuring up all these ether vibrations, nothing is left of the real stuff of our world of color. In order to grasp color objectively, we must try to keep within the world of color itself and not leave it. Then we may hope to penetrate its real nature. Let us try to sink ourselves completely into what we receive through color from the rich and varied world around us. We must feel what is in color if we wish to penetrate into its true nature bringing insight into our feelings. We must surround our feelings about what is living in the color which surrounds us. We must feel what it is in color if we wish to penetrate into its true nature, bringing insight into our feelings. We must question our feelings about what is living in the color which surrounds us. To start with, we must experiment, taking examples which are not too difficult to analyze, but have some striking characteristic which can help us to reach the essentials. Let us begin with the color green, spreading it as a plain surface, P-L-A-I-N, plain surface in a quite diagrammatic manner. If we now simply let our feelings respond to this color, we can experience something in the green which needs no further definition. No one can doubt that we have the same experience from this color as when we look at the plant-colored earth about us. We cannot help it, of course, because it is green. We must disregard everything else the plants mean to us and look only at their greenness. We could very easily insert the most varied colors into our patches of green. We will, however limit ourselves to three particular colors. Into the first patch I place some red, in the second a kind of peach blossom color, and in the third patch, blue. Now, from your immediate impression of these three examples, you will agree that something quite different happens in each case. If I look at this red shape within the green, or the peach blossom, or the blue, I have a quite definite feeling from each. The next step is to express what lies in these different feelings as our soul experiences of them. Abstract definitions can achieve very little. We must try to bring out the true character of our actual experience. Therefore, let us try to enter imaginatively into the colors we have here. From the first example, we may have the impression of a green countryside in which I have drawn red figures. It does not matter whether I give them red faces and skins or red clothes. In the second, figures in peach blossom color, which is similar to the color of the human skin. And in the third patch of green, I have painted blue figures. We are not creating pictures, but simply making a definite series of impressions. Imagine you have the following scene before you. Figures in red, or figures colored like peach blossom, or figures in blue walking over a green meadow. In all three, quite different impressions. Looking at the first, you might say the red figures in their green surroundings enliven the whole green meadow. The meadow becomes all the greener because of the presence of the red figures whilst the green becomes richer, more living. I should find it disturbing if these red figures were not painted as moving figures. It would feel wrong in any other way. I should want to say, it just cannot be like that. I have to make these red figures like lightning. They must be moving. Still red figures in a green meadow? They are disturbing in their stillness. They are moving because of their very redness. They bring something with them into the meadow which cannot be kept still. We must experience a quite definite range of feelings if we are to gain any insight. The second picture is entirely harmonious. The peach-blossom figures can stay there quite peacefully. They can stay there forever. My feeling tells me that these peach-blossom figures have no especial relationship with the meadow and do not affect it by making it seem greener they are quite natural. They can stand where they like without troubling me. They have no inner connection with the green meadow. Now let us look at the third example, blue figures in the green meadow. The green surely does not remain unchanged. The blue begins to dissipate the green meadow in which the figures stand. The meadow's greenness is paralyzed. It is no longer green. Let us try to grasp, imaginatively, what is going on. Blue figures, they could just as well be blue spirits, are wandering about in a green meadow. This then ceases to be green and takes on a bluish hue. The meadow itself becomes bluish and ceases to be green. And if these blue figures were to remain long in the green meadow, it would all slip away from me. Then I would find myself thinking that the blue figures are trying to carry off the meadow and dispose of it in some deep abyss. A green meadow just cannot stay as it is if there are blue figures in it. They take it up and make off with it. This is how one can experience color. And we must be able to have color experience or we cannot grasp what the world of color is at all. The imagination is a fine and beautiful instrument, but we must experiment with it if we want to discover this for ourselves. We must ask what happens to a green meadow in which red figures move. Does it not become more vividly green, its greenness more intense, so that the green begins to burn? The red figures cause such activity in the green which surrounds them that they themselves can no longer stay still. They must run about. And if I want to paint in the right way, I cannot paint people who stand still as red. I would have to paint them as if they were dancing in a ring. A ring of red figures dancing in a green meadow would appear quite natural. On the other hand, figures the color of the human skin could stand in the green meadow just like that for all eternity. They are quite neutral toward the green meadow. They remain just as they are without changing in the least, quite different from the blue figures who make off with the meadow, taking its greenness from it. In order to discuss our actual experience of color, we need comparisons. A crudely Philistine approach will not let us experience color at all. We must make comparisons, But not the usual Philistine kind of comparisons, to say, for instance, that one billiard ball pushes another, stags push, also bullocks and buffaloes, but not billiard balls in actual fact. We have to speak of thrust in physics, because we need the support of analogy in order to speak at all. This makes it possible to look into the world of color as it is. It is within that world we must seek the real nature of color. Let us take a characteristic color, which we have already looked at, the color green which we enjoy so much in summertime. We are quite used to seeing this as the color which belongs particularly to plants. There is no other sphere in which we experience a color so intimately bound up with the inner nature of an object as green is with the plant. If an animal happens to be green, we do not feel it must be this color and no other, but we have an underlying feeling that it could be some different hue. But with the plants, we have the impression that green belongs to the plant as something peculiarly its own. We can now try through the green of the plant to penetrate the objective nature of color instead of remaining as hitherto within its subjective aspects. What is the plant which can reveal the color green to us in such a special way? From spiritual science, you know that the plant owes its existence to the fact that besides its physical body it has an etheric body. It is the etheric body which is the source of life in the plant, but the etheric body is not green. What makes the plant green is to be found in its physical body. Although green belongs to the plant in a most intimate way, it is not the essential nature of the plant. That lies in the etheric body. If the plant had no etheric body, it would be a mineral, and it is the mineral nature of the plant that appears as green. The etheric body is quite a different color, although it does reveal itself in the plant through the green of the mineral element. If we study the green of the plant in relation to the etheric body, we have on one side the true nature of the plant, which lives in the etheric world and on the other, the green, which has been drawn off and separated from the plant. But in taking green from the plant, it is just as if we had made a copy of something. What has been abstracted from the etheric, in green, is really only a picture or image of the plant. This image, so characteristic of the plant, can only be green. In green we have the image of the plant, if green is regarded as the essential plant color, then it must also be regarded as a picture or image of the plant. In green we see the especial character of the plant as image. This is absolutely essential. In the portrait gallery of an old castle, it is obvious that only portraits of the ancestors hang there and not the ancestors themselves. Usually the ancestors themselves aren't there, only their portraits. In the same way, the essential plant is no more in the green than the ancestors are actually present in their portraits. When we look at green we have no more than the image of the plant. Now think once more how green is peculiar to the plant, and remember how the plant is, above all, the most characteristic form of life. The animal possesses a soul, man has soul and spirit, the mineral is without life. Life is the particular characteristic of the plant. The animal has, in addition, a soul. The mineral kingdom is also without soul. Man has, besides these qualities, a spirit. We cannot say of man, animal or mineral that life is the essential quality. In each case it is something else. With the plant, life is its essential characteristic. The color green is the image of this life. We can therefore say quite objectively, green represents the lifeless image of the living. Proceeding inductively, as the learned should do, we have now arrived at the point where an objective description of the color green is possible. Just as the photograph can be described as a picture of someone or something, so green can be described as the lifeless image of that which is living. I have passed from mere reflection on the subjective impression to the realization that green is the lifeless image of the living. Now let us take another color, peach blossom. To be more precise, I should rather speak of the color of the human skin, which naturally differs from one person to another, but this is really what I mean when I speak of peach blossom, the human color or the color of the human skin. Now let us try to understand its essential nature. Usually we look at it only from outside. We look at a man and see the color of his skin only from outside. Can we become aware of it, know it from within, as we have tried to do with the green of the plant? We can if we do it in the following way. If a man really tries to become aware that he is a being of soul and thinks of this inner life of soul as being present within his physical form, then he will also realize that the soul must be visible to some extent in the physical form. His nature is revealed by the way the soul flows into his physical form in the color of his skin. What this means can best be realized by looking at a man whose soul is no longer fully present in his skin, whose outer form is no longer ensouled. What happens to such a man? He turns green life is still there but he turns green we speak sometimes of green people and we know the peculiar green of the complexion when the soul is no longer fully present the effect shows clearly in the human complexion on the other hand the more a man's complexion takes on a particularly uh, excuse me takes on a particular ruddy hue the more we are aware of how he lives in it if we observe the temperament of a green person and one with a really fresh complexion, it becomes evident how the soul lives in the actual color of the skin. Each man's experience of himself shines forth in the very color of his skin. So we can say that the color which appears in the human complexion is in fact an image of the soul. Of all the varied colors in the world around us, peach blossom is the color we would select as being the nearest to that of the human skin. In painting we can only imitate the color of the human skin by various artistic devices. Now, whilst the color of the human being is indeed the image of the soul, it is quite clearly not the soul itself. It is the living image of the soul. The soul experiencing itself is revealed in the color of the human skin. And this color is not lifeless like the green of the plant. Only when his soul withdraws does a person turn green. Then he can become a corpse. But in this color we have something that is alive. Peach blossom represents the living image of the soul. We have now considered two colors. In both cases they have been images. We have endeavored to understand the objective nature of color not merely to take the subjective impression and invent a theory of wave motion to explain it, which is then imagined to be objective. It would be quite absurd to divorce human life from the color of the human skin. It is a quite different physical experience to have pink cheeks or a greenish pallor. A definite inner existence is revealed through the color. Let us now take a third color, blue. It is impossible to find anything of which we can say that blue is characteristic in the way that green is characteristic of the plant, nor could we speak of blue as we could of peach blossom and the human complexion. Amongst animals there is no single color which is characteristic of their nature, as the color of this complexion is of man, or green is of the plant. With blue we cannot start, as we have done so far, from natural phenomena. If we want to continue our exploration of the nature of color, we should leave blue aside for the moment and turn to the lighter colors. If we take the color known as white, we shall find that we shall progress more quickly and easily. White cannot be said, in the first place, to be the characteristic color of any being in the outer world. We could, of course, turn to the mineral kingdom, but it would be better to look in quite another direction to form an objective idea. Of the color white. Let us imagine we have some white in front of us, and light is allowed to play upon it, illuminating it. At once we feel a certain kinship between the white and the light. At first, this is merely an impression, but it becomes more than impression the moment we turn to the sun itself. For the sun has a certain whiteness in its light, and is the source from which all natural illumination on earth is derived. But neither what we see as the sun, nor as white, with its inner kinship to light, appear in the same way as external colors do. External colors appear on objects. The whiteness of the sun, which represents light to us, does not appear directly on objects. Later on we will consider the kind of color we may call the white of paper or chalk, but that will mean making rather a detour. First of all, in order to understand white, we should let ourselves be led by white to the light as such. In order to strengthen this feeling, we need only remember that the opposite of white is black. We have no doubt that black is darkness. We can very easily identify white with brightness, with the light as such. In short, we find an inner connection between light and white when we allow our feelings to speak to us. We will investigate this further in the next few days. If we reflect on the nature of light and are not tempted to cling to the Newtonian fallacy, but observe things without prejudice, we shall say there is a special connection between white, appearing as color, and light. We will at first leave true white on one side. We know of light as such, however, in a different way to the other colors. Do we really perceive light? We would not see color at all if we were not in an, an illumined space. Light makes color visible, but we cannot say that we perceive light just as we do color. Light is certainly present in the space in which we see color. It is the nature of light to make color visible visible but we do not see light as we do red, yellow, or blue. Wherever it is bright, there is light, but we do not see the light. Light must fall on something if we are to perceive it. It must be caught and reflected. Color exists on the surface of objects, but we cannot say that light is fixed to anything. It is always in movement. But... When we wake in the morning and the light streams around and through us, we become inwardly aware of ourselves. We feel an inner kinship between the light and our own essential being. At night, if we wake up in dense darkness, we feel we cannot reach our real being. We have returned to some extent to ourselves, but under such conditions, we do not feel in our true element. And we know, too, that what we receive from the light is a quote, coming to ourselves. Quote. There is no contradiction in the fact that the blind are without this experience. The point is that their organism is designed for it. We have the same relationship to light that our capital I has to the world, yet not quite the same, since we cannot say that because the light fills us we gain our I. Nevertheless, for us to gain this I, light is essential if we are beings with sight. What underlies this fact? In light, which we have said is represented by white, we have still to learn the inner connection between the two. We find what really fills us with spirit, connects us with our own spirit. There is a definite connection between the capital I, our spiritual being, and this experience of the light shining through us. If we grasp this feeling, and all that lives in light and color must first be grasped as feeling, we may say there is a distinction between light and that which appears as spirit in the eye. Nevertheless, the light gives us something of our own spirit. In such a way we shall be able, through the light, to experience how the eye becomes inwardly aware of itself by means of the light. To sum up, we can say that the eye is spiritual, but it must experience itself within the soul. This it does when it feels itself filled with light. We may express this in the formula, white or light represents the soul's image of the spirit. Let us now move into onto black or darkness. It is easy enough to see why I should deal with white and brightness and light at the same time as the relationship between darkness and black. Let us now try to grasp something of their nature, too. Certainly we can easily find something in nature which is just as characteristically black as the plant is green. We need only look at carbon. If we remember that carbon can also become quite clear and transparent—indeed, a diamond—we will be able to understand this connection of blackness with carbon most clearly. For black is so characteristic of carbon that were it not black but white and transparent it would be a diamond. Black is so integral a part of carbon that the latter really owes its whole existence to the blackness. Carbon really finds its own nature in the blackness, the darkness, in which it appears. Just as the plant has its image in green, so does carbon have its image in black. Now, submerge yourself in black. You are completely surrounded by black. In this black darkness, a physical being can do nothing. Life is driven out of the plant when it becomes carbon. Black shows itself alien to life, hostile to life. When plants are carbonized, they turn black. Life then can do nothing in blackness. And the soul? Our soul life deserts us when this awful blackness is within us. But the spirit flourishes. The spirit can penetrate the blackness and assert itself within it. You can try to learn more about this through the art of black and white, using light and shade on your paper. We will return to this aspect later. If you use black on a white surface, you introduce spirit into it. The effect of a black stroke of an area of black is to spiritualize the white. You can bring spirit into the black, but this is all that can be brought into it. Now we have this formula. Black represents the spiritual image of the lifeless. It is quite natural that these formula have to be evolved out of pure feeling. You must now try to penetrate still deeper into what they express and you will see that they really contain a great deal. Green represents the lifeless image of the living. Peach blossom represents the living image of the soul. White or light represents the soul's image of the spirit. Black represents the spiritual image of the lifeless. In each color we have discovered an image of one kind or another, but the color itself is never the reality, only an image. In the first we have the image of the living, then of the soul, the spirit, and the lifeless. If we now arrange this scheme in a circle, there's a diagram, we arrive at something of real significance in studying the objective nature of color. From this circle we can see the relationships between certain fundamental colors, black, green, peach blossom, and white. The adjective characterizing each color is found by moving back to the preceding point on the circle. Black is the spiritual image of the lifeless, green the lifeless image of the living, peach blossom the living image of the soul, and white the soul's image of the spirit. By taking the kingdoms of nature in this way, I am able to ascend stage by stage from the lifeless to the living then to the realm of ensouled beings, and finally to beings of spirit. In a similar way, I can go from black to green, to peach blossom, and to white. Just as I can ascend from the lifeless through the living to beings of soul and spirit, so the world around me appears in its images as I go from black to green, to peach blossom, and to white. Just as Constantine, Ferdinand, Felix, and so on are real people, and I can follow them down their ancestral line, so can I look at their portraits in turn to see the images of their line of ancestry. The world is there before me, with its minerals, plants, animals, and its spiritual kingdom, in so far as man is taken as the spiritual. As I ascend through these realities, nature reveals their images to me. They are reflections cast by nature. The colored world is not reality. Even in nature itself it is only image. The image of the lifeless is black, of the living green. The image of the soul is peach blossom, and of the spirit white. By these means we are led to the objective nature of color. We had to establish this today so that we can penetrate further into the true nature and being of color. For it does not help in the least to say that color is a subjective impression. It is of no significance at all to the color. To green it is quite immaterial, whether we go and stare at it. But it is far from immaterial, that when the living clothes itself in its own characteristic color, this appears outwardly as green so long as it is not tinged by the mineral, not nor colored in the flower. This is a quite objective matter. Whether we stare or not is entirely subjective, but the fact that the living, when it appears as such, should be imaged in green, that is something quite objective. The end of Lecture 1